is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. New York City taking a big step requiring proof of vaccination if you want to go to a restaurant, go to a theater, go to a gym. So will other cities follow? Maybe L.A. One major university wins a lawsuit over its vaccine mandate, but the final battle could be fought in the Supreme Court. We'll look deeper into breakthrough infections. You know who's recovering quickly from the pandemic? Dentists. We'll tell you why. We start with New York City's vaccination requirements for going out. Dr. Robert Kim Farley, professor of epidemiology and community health sciences at UCLA. So, Dr. Should LA and other big cities maybe start to look at doing this too? Well, you know, it is another step forward. Um, I think uh, at this stage, we're seeing in L.A., what are we getting with the requirements for indoor masking? Um, I kind of think of it as a super tanker ship. You know, you turn the rudder, it takes a few miles for it to turn to see what you get for that. Same thing here with COVID with a two week incubation period. We dial one thing down, for example, the indoor masking It's going to take a couple of weeks to see the result of that. Maybe another two weeks after that to see uh, the results of hospitalizations because it takes you that long from getting sick to you know getting into the hospital. So I think we still need to see how we are doing um, with the institution of the uh, requirements of indoor masking first. I guess the argument would be, though, New York is actually doing something that could encourage more people to go and get vaccinated rather than whatever the other effects are. Because the the simple wear your mask because Delta is around, that gets interpreted in all sorts of ways. And we're seeing all the different ways here. It doesn't always come across as what public health wants. But a vaccine mandate reads get vaccinated to go enjoy things instead of masks for everyone vaccinated or not. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a different it's, it's, you know, carrot versus stick. And these are both sticks. But. The other stick is going to whack you way stronger. Well, you know, it's interesting that, you know, some places have, in fact, here in Los Angeles, you know, voluntarily moved to this. For example, I think uh, at least 33 bars in L.A. have have now a requirement to either show proof of vaccination or within the last 72 hours, uh, negative COVID test. I think the restaurant conservatory in West Hollywood was one of the first of the restaurants in L.A. to do this. And of course, we now have the California state uh, system and the University of California system is going to be requiring vaccinations of students, faculty and staff as well. But, you know, it it seems to me that what um, de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio, New York City did was pretty smart because it provides cover for the businesses that maybe don't quite have the backbone yet to insist that their customers be vaccinated uh, because they're afraid of being sued. They're afraid of all kinds of you know negative reactions. And by taking on the onus uh, himself in the form of the mayor of the city of New York saying, no, you've got to get vaccinated if you want to do all this. It makes it so much easier, doesn't it, for shop owners, theater owners, uh, gym owners to have vaccine mandates. And wouldn't that be the same here? Yes, I think that's true uh, to an extent, although also with the health officer orders here in Los Angeles, uh, you know, businesses that do uh, wish to require vaccinations can do so. And that, uh, you know, that is something that would be supported. I think also um, it's recognized that, you know, perhaps requiring vaccinations is something that some institutions and restaurants and all may find actually brings in customers because people feel more comfortable going into an establishment that has these sort of rules in place. So uh, I think it can go that way as well. Dr. Roberts Kim Farley, Professor of Epidemiology, Community Health Sciences at UCLA. 
Indiana University, one of many requiring students and staff be vaccinated when they return to campus. That mandate was met with a lawsuit. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the mandate. This might not be over, though. Supreme Courts could weigh in. Dorit Rice, professor at the UC Hastings School of Law, focuses on health law and policy. So, Professor, how is the suit uh, holding up as it moves on through? Not very well from the student's point of view. The, the mandate is holding up great, but the lawsuit isn't doing so well. The Seventh Circuit just in a very strong decision said that they're not going to stay the mandate. They're not going to put it on hold. And the decision strongly suggests that they think the mandate is constitutional. I was going to say, I mean, isn't there actually a, a fairly uh, good history uh, of uh, legal opinions that uphold, especially in times of uh, medical emergencies, health emergencies, the right to mandate vaccines? There is a very long tradition, going back to the 1905 case of Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which upheld a smallpox vaccine mandate for all adults. The court here actually said the Indiana University mandate is on stronger ground than Jacobson. And is it just the idea that you have to protect everybody versus just worrying about what the few want to do. And if you're going to pull off education at college, nobody wants to go back home and do it remotely. So to have on-campus learning, this is the safest way to do it. And that's fine. That's about the about what the court said. Yes, uh, the court pointed out more or less the three things you're saying. First of all, it's permissible to limit individual rights to protect the public health. You have a right for liberty, but it can sometimes be limited. The limit has to be reasonable, the court said, and it is here. As you're saying, there's no universal right to education. The university can set conditions for education, including conditions that are designed to create safety for everyone. And third, if the you know, as you said, nobody wants to go back to online learning. And if the university thinks that the vaccine mandate is a better alternative than going to remote learning, they can choose that. You know, I, I guess one of the things that, that puzzles me is that, you know, we keep hearing as this goes along, uh, different business owners, they're worried about, you know, can we impose a, a mandate for vaccines? We hear some public institutions that are worried. About, why is everybody so worried about it when the court cases, and as you just pointed out, go as far back as the early parts of the 1900s, and they all seem to point in the same direction that, you know, there are times when it is necessary uh, to mandate that people be vaccinated for certain diseases that can cause others harm and or death. So there's two things here. First, when you go into a court, you always know where you're, how you're coming in, but you don't really know how the decision is going to come out. Courts can change their position over time. The other part is one of the things that's in the background here that didn't actually come up in the in either decision, this district court decision or the appeal court decision that they just didn't address is these vaccines are not licensed. They're under an emergency use authorization. And before the pandemic, there was a respectable uh, opinion by federal agencies and scholars that you can't mandate a vaccine under an EUA. Uh, And the reasoning was the EUA law requires the Secretary of Health to let vaccine recipients know that they can accept or refuse a product and of any consequences. But 
some very respected scholars and uh, agencies said, if you can accept or refuse the product, mandates are prohibited. Yeah, and, and, and other view, go on. Yeah, I was going to say, and, and the whole thing, that also kind of, I, I find interesting, this whole argument that some people make that, well, maybe we can mandate it, but not when it's still under an emergency authorization. To go back to that smallpox uh, vaccine decision in, what was it, 1905, was it? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think the FDA existed then, did it? Uh, it existed for a few years, but it wasn't as it didn't have as broad power as it has now. Uh, and as you're saying, as you're suggesting, that vaccine was not licensed. That vaccine goes back to the 18th century. It's from 1794. Yeah. So, 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 isn't that kind of uh, precedent? Um, no, because the current EUA law is from 2004. And it's really a question of does did this law change the legal situation? It really is, is, is a specific question of how do we interpret this new federal law from 2004? That's the question. And there hasn't been any cases on it because until now, we never had a whole population vaccine under an EUA since 2004 anyway. So does that tip the scale, though, that so many people have gotten the thing that now it's kind right. of it's like it's authorized even a few months before it is? I would say it's, it doesn't tip the scale, but it gives a plausible legal argument to people who are fighting against mandate. I think it's not a very strong argument, but it's it's an argument that Jacobson didn't have, and it's an argument that's plausible, that's not completely off the wall. All right, Jarit Rice, professor at the UC Hastings School of Law. Coming up after a short break, everything you've ever wanted to know about breakthrough infections and then some. No doubt you've been hearing a lot about COVID breakthrough infections. We've certainly talked about them. Let's do a deeper dive now into what they are, why they're happening, how they impact people. Dr. Abby Rudolph, professor of epidemiology, biostatistics at Temple University's College of Public Health. She talks about the breakthrough infections with KYW's Matt Leon. Can I give a little bit of background about mm-hmm. like what the 95% um, efficacy means? And so basically, no vaccine is 100% effective and every single vaccine has different levels of efficacy and effectiveness. And so when we do the randomized controlled trial, um, we're looking at efficacy under ideal circumstances in a controlled environment. So for example, with the Pfizer, where we have um, you know, n- about 95% efficacy, we start off with over 40,000 people and then we randomly assign people to either placebo or vaccine. And then we look at how many people get infected. And so like in the randomized control trial, among the people that were vaccinated, we did see eight infections. Among the people that weren't vaccinated, we saw 162 infections. So then when we calculate this efficacy, we're basically, we're looking at the infection risk in the placebo group, which was 0.74%, the infection risk in the vaccinated, which is 0.04, so you know, not zero. And we're not looking at how much does a vaccine reduce your individual risk. We're looking at how much is the infection risk reduced if you're given a vaccine versus non-vaccinated. So in the vaccinated population compared to in the absence of the vaccination. So um, we do see, you know, people get infected even under these ideal scenarios. Um, And, you know, eight is a small number because we're looking at, you know, a randomized control trial is a large number of people, 40,000. But just to give you an idea, like if we were to scale up this fraction to the U.S. population, so let's say 328 million people in the U.S., and let's say we gave every single person the vaccine and we applied this 0.04% 
you know, breakthrough rate, then we would expect to have 131,200 breakthrough infections. So this is, you know, we do expect that some um, people will get infected even though they were vaccinated. The hope is that their disease will be mild or not severe enough to require hospitalization or death. And then the other thing that I wanted to note was that the vaccine trials are conducted under more ideal circumstances. And so in addition to um, the vaccine, there's other variables that happen in real life. And that's when we do, you know, effectiveness trials. So we look at how well it does in a real population that's not in a clinical trial. And so in the clinical trial, we actually remove people. So we say you're excluded from participating in this study if you are immune compromised, if you have HIV, if you're receiving chemotherapy, have an autoimmune disease. These are all factors that reduce an individual's response to a vaccine. So not every single person responds well to a vaccine. Some people don't actually mount an effective immune response. And so the numbers that we expect in these clinical trials are actually higher than what we would expect in real life. Because in real life, we do vaccinate people that are, you know, organ transplant recipients that are on chemotherapy that have HIV that are immune compromised. So we know that there's going to be, um, you know, some people that don't do as well with the vaccine and are more likely to get infected. And then, of course, we also have these different vaccines. So each vaccine is a little bit different. And then, you know, the variants. So Pfizer's initial trial was before we ever had Delta. So, you know, once we introduce these other factors, then we're going to expect basically more infections than even that, you know, little thought experiment I did with just scaling up the Pfizer trial. From what we've seen, from what you've seen, I should say, of the data of breakthrough infections, is there anything that you feel is out of line with what expectations were or does it all pretty much fall within the parameters of what you would expect given the real world situation we're in? Well, so in a recent study that was published in Israel, so they had enrolled a group of healthcare workers that were fully vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine, um, and they followed them over time, and they found that 2.6% of the people, the healthcare workers that were um, vaccinated, actually became infected. So that 2.6 is higher than the 0.04%. Now, they technically are a higher at-risk population because they're interacting potentially with people that are sick and have a, a higher risk of coming into close contact with somebody that's infected. But it is higher than what we expected. Um, and they also looked at the tighter levels, which is one way of saying, you know, how, how much of your, how much immune response did you get after having the vaccine? And they saw that the people that had lower tidal levels around the time that they were infected were more likely to get uh, the disease than people that had lower levels. Um, but the, the two things, I guess, um, that are probably maybe concerning are that, um, about 19% of people that got sick ended up having symptoms of long COVID. So like headaches, muscle pain, loss of taste and smell, um, fatigue that lasted for more than six months. And we know that long COVID can happen whether you have an asymptomatic infection or whether you're hospitalized. Um, so I think just the long-term implications of like what we might be 
looking at down the line in terms of long COVID is something that we don't really have a handle on and we don't know what might happen. But, um, you know, the idea of reducing hospitalization and death is is good. And, you know, even a mild infection still, though, can lead to long COVID. So I think that's something that we have to um, think about. And the other thing is that even in this study, which was with primarily, you know, do you remember the variant that was initially introduced in the UK? It was called the alpha variant. Mm -hmm. So this study was primarily with people that were infected with that variant, the UK variant. And so they noticed that they had higher viral loads. And so normally when you, they had high viral loads during part of the time they were infected. And so high viral load means like, you know, you're expelling more virus particles and you're more likely to transmit. So I think that the hope with people um, when we started with the vaccination was that if you were infected, probably your viral level, your viral load would be lower, you would be less infectious and you wouldn't be able to infect people. Um, And so at least this study showed that, you know, people did have um, a high viral load at some point. So that means probability of infecting people you know, with these breakthrough infections. And then potentially now, you know, now the CDC released um, information about the Delta variant being um, as contagious as chickenpox and that people that um, these, you know, breakthrough infections are also able to transmit to others. So that is maybe a wrinkle that not everybody was um, wanting to happen. (laughs) Um, that people still get sick and can still transmit to others. And then this this issue of long COVID, I guess. Dentists, they are seeing a surge in business now that pandemic restrictions have eased. People who fell behind their routine cleanings and checkups are now catching up. Dr. Zach Tilden, dentist in Chicago, wrote the book Your Cavity-Free Life, and he talks to WBBM's Jim Goodis. Yes, of course. I mean, we've got the uh, backlog from anybody that was waiting to get vaccinated maybe before they come back in but also people wait in general it seems to get dental care and then they may have been a a year delayed on top of that so that's the big hurdle now yeah we've got a lot of overdue work and unfortunately when you put things off especially when it comes to dental work i imagine the problems can get worse right yeah they definitely do and uh you know a lot of the cavities and gum disease you may not feel when it's in that early stage so that's the time to best treat it but, uh, you know, people often are waiting now until they really feel something going wrong. And at that time, it could be a little bit more severe than it should be. Now, I understand that there's a shortage of hygienists. What's going on there? Yeah, that one's interesting. It seems like due to the uh, stay at home with school and virtual um, school, because the hygiene field seems to be more female dominated. I think a lot of them just had to make some sacrifices and stay home. And now they're finally getting kids back to to school and everything. So we're finding that people are looking for jobs again and starting to fill in those empty spots. So what's the best advice for people who are considering getting their dental work done, wanting to go in to see the dentist or need to have uh, an appointment made maybe if they have to find a new dentist? What's the best advice for folks so they can ensure that they get the treatment they need as quickly as they can? Right. The main thing it seems like now is just to be flexible with your schedule and just call you know as soon as you can to schedule maybe a week out or two weeks out because a lot of the offices are going to be a bit booked up and they're trying to catch up on this backlog plus they may be understaffed and trying to bring on new staff so 
just flexibility and calling ahead is the key. All right, that's Dr. Zach Tilden. He's the owner of the Tilden Dental Group in Chicago Streeterville neighborhood. American mask manufacturers are warning they will soon go broke without government support. Private companies and state and local governments favor Chinese masks, which cost just a fraction of American-made face coverings. The lack of demand has forced mask manufacturers to lay off more than 5,000 employees. Mask makers are pushing the Biden administration to buy hundreds of millions of masks currently sitting in storage to boost the strategic national stockpile and keep the industry alive. The lobbying campaign comes as the Delta variant surges across the country. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.